listening to the entire Maya history documentary. They believed an invisible sacred quality called Ker inhabited all physical objects, including humans. Midas Touch playlist and my uh, entire history documentary. Many of the gods would manifest themselves visibly in things like the sun, moon, stars, lightning, and rain. The gods could also take on human or animal form. We're listening to the Maya. Both humans and animals possessing something called a Y usually interpreted as an invisible spirit companion, often associated with a wild animal of the forest or the night, one of the most powerful being the jaguar. The Y controlled their fate so that the illness or death of one mm, was reflected flamingos. in the other. No flamingos. But they also appear to have believed in a life force or a soul, the essence of which existed in human breath. In their art, this is depicted as a scroll leaving their mouths, and sometimes as a flower or carved jade in front of their faces. Looks like a pipe to me. According to later accounts, written soon after the Spanish conquest, the Maya believed that departed souls went to a place where there was no pain or suffering, and an abundance of food and drink. <laughs> Those who went to this paradise automatically were rulers, priests, those who'd been sacrificed, oh warriors killed in battle, women who died in childbirth, and those who committed suicide by hanging. The parallels to Christianity are intense, perhaps explaining the confusion between sacrifice and martyrdom in the 16th century, both constituting a so-called good death. In this paradise of the afterlife, the sacred saber tree grew. <clears throat> Under the branches, people could rest from their labors in the shade. A giant saber, the tree of life, is also said to have grown at the center of the world, supporting the sky. Widely believed to be a representation of the maize god Hun Hunapu, a benevolent deity who had brought life into the world in the first place, fashioning the first people from corn, as well as continuing abundance and prosperity. Although the heavenly bodies of the night sky were believed to be deities, an interesting idea I <clears throat> heard about recently through all this podcasting, which I do 24-7, by the way. And if you want to, um, you know, support me and my work, then you can share my stuff. But anyway, yeah, an interesting idea about uh, that, that the Amazon is actually, uh, you know, the Eden concept that it's man-made. Isn't that an interesting concept? The Maya, nevertheless, knew these sky wanderers, as they called them, had predictable patterns of movement. That's because the job of these gods was to maintain the world order and the cycles of time. They would only do so, however, as long as humans behaved properly, performing the appropriate rituals. Without modern instruments, the Maya were able to achieve great accuracy in their measurement of the cyclical movements of the heavenly bodies. Said that the Maya um, didn't build They that. did this by obtaining clear sight lines to points it. on the horizon they moved there. from hilltops or tall buildings, 
like observatories such as the Caracol at Chichen Itza. Astonishingly, these Mayan proto-scientists calculated the solar year to be 365 no, days. Kind of like Japanese to me. Even realizing oh. this number to not be exact. But as far as we can tell, they did not correct this with leap years or another system. From what we can tell, the Maya were the only pre-Columbian American society who used a fixed point in time from which to count their chronological records. Possessing a highly accurate mathematical system. Yeah, that's an observatory. The Romans had never learned of the concept of zero. Their entire numerical system counted upwards from one. formed. 
sanctioned priesthood development. Priests are performing rituals now on behalf of the state, while shamans continued their role as non-elite religious specialists. Priesthoods were self-contained, their members drawn from the nobility. Priests appear to have been literate, and they composed a body of esoteric literature. Codifying and systematizing their knowledge. The rituals that the priests performed for the state included the burning of incense and offerings, sometimes including blood of the priest, and occasionally human sacrifice. No. The ceremonies to inspire awe in the people. Music, feasting, and dance. The ruler of the polity was considered the chief of the priests and would have engaged in many of these ceremonies, including offering his own blood. Royal women did this as well. Blood was important because it was thought to be a powerful source of coup. It is the greatest coup offering with life itself. Ultra important rituals may well involve human sacrifice. The usual sacrificial victims were prisoners of war. Specifically those of higher class were favoured. But these types of sacrifices were relatively rare, only taking place on special occasions, such as the inauguration of a new ruler, the dedication of a new temple, or the designation of an heir to the throne. On very special occasions, a captured king might be sacrificed, his killing usually being carried out by ritual decapitation. Human sacrifice seems to have become more popular in the post-classic period, a time of great change and cataclysm as the Maya came under more influence from the people of central Mexico. To reaffirm their supernatural connections during their reign, and to show that they were personifications of the cycles of time, kings would perform special rituals at the endings of major periods of the calendar. Public occasions included feasting, dancing, and entertainment. During these events, the ruler would recall the original creation of the world by the gods. Back in 3114 BC. But of course, all things must come to an end. single massive tree trunk of mahogany or cedar. The vessel was eight feet wide in the middle and very long. Longer. In the center, under a palm thatched building, sat the owner and his family. A rich Ekab merchant carrying a cargo of pottery, dyed clothes, oh, copper axes and bells, a foundry, wooden swords hewn with obsidian, and of course, the currency of the Maya world, cacao beans. Hmm. Also in the hold were vital provisions for their lengthy journey. Maize bread and maize gruel. For the vessel was bound for distant Honduras and the island of Guanaco. The rowers, paddling in unison for their lives, were slaves.
then, one day, as sunbeams sparkled lazily on the azure ocean. Impossible sights began blurring into view. Way out, off on the horizon, mountains towered on the water, growing ever larger. We don't know exactly what happened, but given the utterly alien sight before them, the rowers may well have stopped in their tracks, scarcely believing what they were seeing. For it soon became clear the mountains were ships. Before long, a strange meeting took place between the two vessels. Some of the crew even being invited aboard by the newcomers. Seeming in a trance, knowing not whether they were dreaming or awake. Dreaming. Soon enough though, their world would irrevocably change. There was no going back now. For this was the flagship of the European explorer, Christopher Columbus on his fourth voyage to the New World. His four vessels. Oh, shit. You fucking kidding me. Discover the Ozepic Zone. Join those already taking Ozempic. Ask your healthcare provider about Ozempic. Welcome to Pod Save America. Oh, I'm John Favreau. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. Packed with gold hungry sailors. Now mentally and physically exhausted from persistent storms. Columbus still sought a passage to distant Cathay or Japan, where his fortune would be made. China. For him too, the curious meeting had been completely unexpected. Shocked at the ease with which the Indians were brought aboard his flagship, he was pleasantly surprised when suddenly they objected to inspections of their clothing. clothing. Seeking to protect their modesty, he assumed. Despite their savage appearance, they might make good Christians. Huh. Indicating that they'd come from the west, where lands of great wealth could be found. Many of Columbus's crew would be back, but not yet. His destination then was Honduras. Seeking to find a passage through the continent to China and the Spice Islands beyond. Ultimately, he would fail, marooned and ruined on First Jamaica. Governor of the Indies. By 1506, he was dead. As for those Mayans, some were taken by the Spaniards as curiosities. Others, no doubt, went on their way forever changed. Word slowly spreading of that strange meeting by the sea. By 1518, several more European ships had traveled in Columbus's wake to the Americas. Yet, the mainland was still largely a mystery. Its very existence not yet even fully confirmed. In May of that year, during Juan de Grijalva's voyage, a crew member named Juan Diaz recorded what he saw on the mainland. We followed the shore day and night, and the next day, towards sunset, we perceived a city or town so large 
that Seville would not have seemed more considerable nor better. No. We saw there a very large tower. On the shore was a great throng of Indians who bore two standards which they raised and lowered to single us to approach them. The commander did not wish it. Whether word had already arrived at the settlement, we don't know. But we do know the likely candidate for the town. One of the... Oops. Rads. We're watch listening to the entire history of the Mayans, ancient America history documentary. For the town. On history time. One of the most significant Channel. of its day. Today, due to its cut. Uh, no gaming. No gaming. It's the Maya. It's close proximity to Cancun and the major tourist resorts. It's one of the most visited in the 21st century. We know the place as Tulum. By that time, when Tulum stretched along the shore, at the height of its majesty, the hinterlands of the Maya world were no longer as important as they had once been. Burgeoning trade routes on the sea, now connecting the Yucatan all the way from Tabasco in the north to Honduras and beyond in the south forging unique art styles in this Gulf of Mexico sphere. Seen at places like Jaina Island, with its interesting statues. And yet, despite Diaz's description, based on the archaeology, Tulum was small. And it did have a tradition of building temples, creating murals, and even using hieroglyphs. The town itself likely only had a population of around 1,000, arrayed around a single street, protected by a boundary wall. When compared to the colossal majesty of the classic cities, the situation becomes very clear. Not far from Tulum. Deep in the interior forests of the western Yucatan. Yucatan! Stands the powerhouse which once ruled this land. Astride its many lagoons. At its height, the once mighty city of Coba had been home to 50,000. And though it was still inhabited by that time, only being entirely abandoned by around 1550, a mere fraction of its population still sheltered in the massive ruins. Maintaining temples, and worshipping in the ritual spaces of their ancestors. Koba was mostly a ghost town. Religious shrine of those with long memories. And compared to its old enemy Chichen Itza, Koba was comparatively lucky. The rival city having been entirely abandoned hundreds of years earlier, even before the arrival of the Spaniards, the Maya world had suffered an immense fall. The archaeology is irrefutable. From the Pacific coast to the Atlantic, beginning in the southwestern lowlands and then gradually expanding into other areas, from the 9th century AD, every Maya state experienced a drastic decline. 
Many different theories have been proposed for this collapse in the so-called Terminal Classic period. But it appears that no single reason can fully explain the cataclysm. More likely is that there were various trends at play, all contributing to some extent, perhaps in a so-called systems collapse. Although some have suggested a single catastrophic event or series of them, such as a pandemic or earthquakes, hard evidence is lacking. Others have pointed to problems within Maya society, citing overpopulation or increased competition between the states, which led to more power struggles and war, thus undermining the concept of divine kingship. We do know that larger polities had a tendency to fragment into smaller petty states. And by the year 900, in most areas, the practice of erecting monuments had ceased. Perhaps the rulers had simply lost their divine status. Their underlings no longer willing to worship their power. It's unclear, but temples, palaces, Causeways and ball courts were simply no longer being built. The production and distribution of luxury goods all but disappeared. Archaeology tells us that environmental problems such as deforestation, soil erosion, and drought were occurring. certainly contributing to the decline. With little food to eat or water to drink, the population drastically reduced. Survivors forced to migrate to areas with better soil and more resources. Yet, the decline wasn't uniform or the same everywhere. The collapse of the classic Maya centers during this time of social and economic change coincided with the rise of Maya groups on the margins. For example, Koba's misfortune had been Chichen Itza and then Tulum's gain. Just as the jungle reclaimed Tikal and Kalakmul, other cities to the north entered their golden age. One of the driest regions in the lowlands was in the northwest portions of the Yucatan Peninsula. Yet, people had adapted to their surroundings here by accessing the waters of cenotes and building cisterns. Some of the best-known terminal classic cities are from this area, rising between the years 800 and 1000. Sites like Ushmal, Kabar, and Sayil flourished at the same time that cities further south descended into turmoil and apocalyptic death. These locations, rulers reinstated traditions of authority in imitation of earlier Maya states. But they also seem to have learned from the mistakes of their predecessors in holding back from fully centralizing. There was diminished emphasis on a single king and a greater degree of power sharing. the terminal classic period closed, perhaps as the age-old issues with the environment resurfaced, even these cities would come to an end.
And yet, a new political order arose in that area at the time. A violent order forged in the collapse. Ushering in the period we call the post-classic. The dominant power in the region at that time was the polity of Chichen Itza, which reigned supreme from the terminal classic up until around 1100. At its peak, it was the largest and most powerful of all Maya cities and a great cosmopolitan capital adopting many elements from the distant Valley of Mexico. With actual invasion by the Toltecs once being a popular theory, though now questioned by many archaeologists. Toltec or not, Chichen Itza's architecture and art certainly combined that of traditional Maya heritage with other styles from throughout Mesoamerica, especially the Gulf Coast and central Mexico. The Itza state was run not by a single divine ruler, but by a decentralized authority that included a supreme council composed of elite lords who held specific offices. They promoted a religious cult based on the worship of the feathered serpent god, Kukulkan, known and worshipped in central Mexico as Quetzalcoatl. The religion's ideology was a clear departure from the divine ruler cult of times past, transcending all the linguistic and ethnic divisions that had characterized the old order promoting an interchange of ideas across Mesoamerica. And yet, before long, even Chichen Itza would fall. Again though, from the ashes, another state would arise, forged by leagues of ruling elites. This was the age of Maya Pan. Perhaps the last of the truly great cities of the Maya. By 1461, the home ruling family had been demanding tribute for decades. Finally, the hostage Zhu gathered a force together to defeat them. This was a blood feud that would continue for centuries. The city was abandoned, joining the already crumbled metropolises of the south, leaving only relatively tiny centres like Tulum still intact. This isn't to say the people in general were necessarily any worse off just that they now opted to live in smaller groups. No longer thralls of the whims of increasingly top-heavy elites. But of course, much worse was to come, for the Spaniards brought much more than just guns and the Christian God. Aboard their vessels came all manner of diseases, smallpox, diphtheria, cholera, bubonic plague, typhus and typhoid. Mesoamerica had no pack animals and thus no long acquired immunity to the diseases of pigs, cows and sheep. Thus, when the likes of Cortez headed through the wilderness Hi, in 1525 with a large amount of pack animals, he may well have brought death in his wake. Just as other conquistadors did before and after. All it would take was one community to be affected by these plagues. They would be spread one by one to the others.
It's thought in total as many as 90% of people in the New World may have died from such diseases. Those who survived lived in a post-apocalyptic landscape. Oh my God. With their forced conversion and destruction of their old ways, it was a world without memory, history or meaning. No wonder it seemed impossible that they'd built the great cities of old. After hundreds of years of slavery, in 1761, underlying tensions finally exploded, and the colonial city of Valladolid was ravaged by a Maya army from the hinterlands. Prohibited to own guns, instead they fought with spades, shovels and their bare hands. Much of the city was destroyed, its population massacred. When the leader of the rebellion, calling himself Kanek after the old Itza king, was finally caught by the Spaniards, intense reprisals meted out on the Maya populace. At first, he was mercilessly tortured. Afterwards, he was hanged and whilst still alive, drawn and quartered. <laughs> By the time the Spanish Empire fell apart entirely in the 19th century, tensions again exploded. And by the time Stevens and Catherwood made their journey through the Yucatan, full-scale war erupted, known as the Caste Wars. Only ending more than 50 years later, in 1901, with the capture of the Maya capital, Chan Santa Cruz, by which time some 250,000 people had lost their lives. Many of them Spanish settlers, a huge percentage of the overall population. Skirmishes continued until 1933. Archaeologist Sylvanus Morley arrived at Tulum in 1922. It wasn't long after a holy woman or witch had taken up residence there. For the Maya, finally free from Spanish rule, were again able to practice the ways of their ancestors. The cult of the speaking cross heretical to hardline Catholics, holding immense importance. Today, many autonomous communities of Maya exist throughout southern Mexico, harking back to the days of their mighty ancestors. Having, against all the odds, survived the test of time. When Giles Healy moved to Mexico in 1944, the modern world was very much in full swing. Catastrophic technologies of mass death implemented all over the globe in the horrors of the Second World War. In comparison, the forests of Central America must have seemed a different planet. Like heading back in time to antiquity.
graduating from Yale in 1924 with a chemistry degree before embarking on careers as a cartographer, photographer, and finally, by the 1940s, archaeologist. Working for the powerful United Fruit Company, who commissioned him to make a film on their behalf, Healy headed deep into the Chiapas jungle, west of Rio Lacahana, in search of an elusive people, seemingly lost in time. Seemingly. Over the next two years, not only would Healy find the Lacondon Maya, but befriend them, bringing many gifts of hunting rifles, ammunition, clothes, food, and medicine. In return, they guided him to the sacred sites of their ancestors. Many of which, like Yakshalan, and Bonampak, they treated, and still treat, with immense respect, believing them to be the dwelling places of their gods. Still frequenting them today to make offerings, burn incense, and keep their ancient traditions alive. By 1946, Healy had explored and charted around 20 sites. It was only then that the Lacondon decided to show him one of the most astonishing of all. At Bonampak, where access had previously been refused to white men, Healy ascended the main temple complex. Approaching a building on the lower temple platform, he could see three separate entrances, all opening into individual rooms. Upon entering one of the rooms, at first all was dark. The thing that's different about a verbal vacation home you always have the whole place to yourself. No stranger at the dinner table making things awkward or in another room taking up space. But when illuminated by torchlight, he could scarcely believe his eyes. All around him, coating the walls, were exceptionally preserved murals. For decades it had been hypothesized that such things must once have existed, given the tiny fragments left at other sites. Hints of paint just giving a tiny idea of what glories might once have existed. turned to nothingness by the persistent damp of the forest. Hmm. Yeah, you can barely see it. But here, at Bonampak, due to the unusual conditions within that building, and perhaps the reverence for the place, meaning it was left undisturbed, elaborate frescoes, completely unique and unprecedented in their state of preservation, have survived. dated to the very height of the classical period, between around 790 and 800 AD. The work is thought to have been achieved during a single session, masterminded by a genius artist, perhaps, a Mayan Michelangelo. They illustrate the realities of royal life during this time. The 
first room shows the presentation of an heir to his people and the celebration of his acceptance, complete with naked sacrificial victims arrayed all around, blood spouting from their removed fingernails. Welcome to Pod Save America. Oh, I'm John Fabry. Fuck off. This is democracy now, democracy. Welcome to Pod Save America. Well, let me take a screenshot on it. At the time, the Maya were widely thought by academics to have been a peaceful, theocratic society of philosopher astronomers and calendar priests. that human sacrifice and war were not only accepted but integral parts of society came as a great shock to many in the field. Hmm. Esteemed Mayan archaeologist Sylvanus Morley, one of the giants in his day, who'd named Bonampak in the first place, simply refused to believe it. <laughs> but as the years went by, the evidence only continued to mount. The Maya were taken down from their pedestal. Like every other culture in the history of the world, they were human after all. Warriors and philosophers, astronomers, Adherence <laughs> to blood sacrifice. <laughs> In the words of the French philosopher Claude Levi Strauss Field, esteemed Mayan archaeologist Sylvanus Morley, one of the giants in his day, who'd named Bonampak in the first place, simply refused to believe it. But as the years went by, the evidence only continued to mount. The Maya were taken down from their pedestal. Like every other culture in the history of the world, they were human after all. <laughs> Duh. Warriors and philosophers, astronomers <laughs> and adherents I'm to blood like sacrifice. Sometimes. In the words of the French philosopher Claude Levi Strauss, it is the need or requirement which constitutes the species. Or, in other words, those of the 16th century priest Bartolome de las Casas. All the world is human. And yet, even today, wild theories abound. <sighs> the likes of ancient aliens and ancient super-civilizations arguing the Maya couldn't have built their civilization on their own. In the years after Stevens and Catherwood, there was a great regression in public opinions of Native Americans. A regression which still continues to this day. In the later 1800s, the first photographer of the ruins and well-respected archaeologist Desiree Charney thought they were Asiatic in origin. The very first researcher to visit Palenque, Ramon Aguiar, went even further, Aguiar. deciding the place to have been Aguilar. built by Votan Quetzalcoatl legendary hero of myth after he received divine command to leave Atlantis and lay the foundations of Central American civilization. And yet, in over a century of research and discovery, despite pseudo-archaeological claims to the contrary, no evidence has ever been found of Mesoamerican contact with people across the ocean. Before the arrival of the Spaniards in the late 15th century. Instead, 
that vast amounts of evidence concretely indicates a purely indigenous cultural development. I think we should put Entirely more money of our resources of towards archaeology. Developed hunting technologies, agriculture, irrigation, pottery, metallurgy, pottery. writing, urbanism, writing, political yeah. systems, step pyramids, and monumental architecture. Even if a stray fisherman or merchant landed on American shores at one time or another, these occurrences simply wouldn't have been enough to affect the overall trajectory of cultural development. Any evidence of this, or larger incursions, is completely lacking. When we study Mayan civilization, therefore, we are dealing with a culture that was formed from its own internal BC processes. To the 16th century. 3,600 years. Certainly shaped by contacts with neighbors, but these were local interactions, not globe-crossing distant ones. when we see the Maya people of today, around six million of them, we can be assured that we are looking at the descendants of the people who built those magnificent temples, observatories, religious and political structures and technologies. The fact that their lifestyle has changed over the centuries should not trick us into believing that they were incapable of such accomplishment. Or even if our current <laughs> way of life is inferior to the one they lived in the past. Despite the immense changes of the last 500 years, many of the old traditions have survived into the present. Including beliefs about marriage and kinship, cultivation of crops, crafts and the production of goods, beliefs, rituals, dances, and perhaps most importantly, their spoken language. These elements of Mayan society, remarkable in their cohesion, can all be traced directly back to the ancient past. Unlike most other indigenous groups, who ended up being scattered over the years after the Europeans arrived, the Maya are still a largely homogenous group, found in one region. The Yucatan Peninsula, Belize, Guatemala, the western parts of Honduras, and the Chiapas and Tabasco regions of Mexico. One unbroken area the lands of their ancestors. In the past, it was common for Europeans to belittle the Maya, the same as other indigenous Americans, decrying their pagan practices and religious rituals as barbaric, often to justify conquest, colonialism yep. and conversion. Yep. Christian priests and missionaries accompanied every Spanish expedition to the New World because the legal and moral justification of the conquest the came from Christianity. During the long, protracted and violent takeover of the Yucatan by the Spanish, which included the extraction of countless indigenous people into slavery, Christian missionaries endeavoured to convert the local populations. As we have seen, although some Maya did enthusiastically accept the new faith, many resisted. 
some members of the clergy resorted to harsh measures. Even burning irreplaceable Maya holy books. And as frustration increased over the difficulty in moving the Maya away from their indigenous religious practices, Spanish elites began to argue that the Maya people needed to be forcibly converted. An important debate occurred in 1550 and 1551 between Juan Guinez de Sepulveda, who argued that Maya crimes against nature, such as human sacrifice and self-mutilation, needed to be suppressed even by war if necessary. <laughs> and Bartolome de las Casas, an early humanitarian of sorts, who argued that the Maya were fully capable of reason and ought to be convinced and persuaded. same period when the Maya were practicing it. In Europe, thousands were being burned alive on stakes for heresy. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition and protracted executions in the name of religion. Killing in the name of executions that would only become more common with the witchcraft trials of the 17th century. As we have seen, Europeans also downplayed Maya achievements as unremarkable, or simply denied the achievements were even theirs. There are many today who continue to do this, claiming that a more advanced culture from elsewhere was responsible for the greatness of Maya civilization. And the indigenous people merely imitated the ideas of these more ancient visitors, adapting them in a simple or awkward manner. After all that has happened to them over the centuries, this is a great insult to the Maya people. Over the centuries, researchers have gradually come to understand that Maya civilization is not any more fantastical or mythical than any other. It was and is a complex, resourceful and remarkable society that developed over long periods of time in much the same way as other ancient societies, no matter what continent they are found on. like the rest of the world, credit and criticism should be given where each is due. Thankfully, today, many misconceptions about Maya society are being corrected. Mysteries about their past are being solved. And more and more hard evidence is being collected to shed light on this fascinating culture. They died because of the uh, only time brought what more riches are out there, out. just waiting them. to be found. There's not much mystery in that. You've been watching Colonizer, History Time. Colonizer, As always, I'm your host, Colonizer, 16th century, yeah.
hearts. More importantly, they're in men's hearts because <laughs> most of them have everything that an object of fascination is supposed to have. Natural beauty, stunning bodies, charisma <laughs> and light temper. Yes, these ladies are beautiful and even you can't deny that a lot of men are physically attracted to them. Anyway, Slavic women are truly respect and appreciate American men. These ladies are passionate. They have been raised to respect family and traditional values. American guys are usually less passionate and emotional than Slavic men. It may seem that this could stop the local girls from looking for a foreign husband, but opposites attract. They like men from American countries because they are more ambitious, financially and socially responsible, and after all, they are just more rational. Lots of girls are dreaming of a good husband from America. So, what's the <laughs> problem? Choose a dating site, a few weeks of conversation, personal meetings, and voila, a new happy couple is here. And of course, Slavic women speak English fluently. It's important, right? Yes, there are lots of translation tools to make Slavic foreign people clear, girls. but it's always easier and more pleasant to make a nice conversation with a girl without translator's help. Have you ever noticed how the members of Slavic families treat each other? This is what a man get when they marry a Slavic family and motherhood are sacred to most girls from Slavic countries. Women bring harmony to men's lives, special traditions where their husband can feel at home and enjoy a safe harbor. Slavic women do not pay much attention to the age difference. They do believe that a good personality stands first. More of it, they likely prefer men over 40, because they are more wise and stable. Sounds perfect, right? So why wait? Dare and take what is yours. Click the link below and take a two-minute compatibility test with the young Slavic ladies. <laughs> with the young Slavic ladies.